If you're going to wear a mask, wear a mask that makes a statement. Something like, safety third, or I'm smiling under this thing. A mask that's already helped MicroWorks raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for our next work ethics scholarship program. Doesn't matter if you love them or hate them, masks are going to be with us for a while. So if you're going to follow the rules, you might as well wear a mask that'll help us train the next generation of skilled workers. Go to microworks.org shop and pick out the mask that suits your fancy. 100% of the proceeds go to my foundation. And 100% of our masks are made right here in the USA. That's microworks.org shop. Microworks.org shop. This is the way I heard it. Libby was a tall drink of water, no two ways about it. A statuesque, full-figured gal who was, in the words of Rogers and Hammerstein, broad where a broad should be broad. Beyond her classic beauty, though, Libby possessed another quality that most men found irresistible, a quality that suggested anything might be possible with a girl like her. Fred conceived Libby 20 years ago. And though her mom was never really in the picture, it would be unfair to call Fred a single parent. Fred loved his little girl as much as any father could love a daughter, but it was Gus who actually raised her. And now, Fred and Gus were trying to arrange a marriage, searching the world for a man who would put Libby on a pedestal. For a time, it seemed like that man would be the governor of Egypt, Ismail Pasha, was handsome, charming, and clearly enamored of Libby. He said all the right things and promised to build her a fabulous home right there at the entrance of the newly completed Suez Canal. Fred was delighted. Obviously, Ismael was a Muslim, but Libby didn't care about that. In fact, it was agreed that Libby would wear a veil in public, if doing so would please him. But after two years of courtship, it became clear that Egypt was not the right place for a woman like Libby. For her part, Libby took the rejection in stride, but Fred was beside himself. He had wasted two years with Ismael, and his little girl wasn't getting any younger. So Fred and Libby sailed to America to find a more suitable suitor. There, to everyone's surprise and delight, the mayor of Baltimore proposed as did the mayor of Boston, the mayor of Philadelphia, and the mayor of San Francisco. American mayors, it seemed, had a thing for full-bodied gals who radiated possibility. But ultimately, it was a Hungarian Jew who persuaded Fred that New York City was the only sensible place for his daughter to call home. At a glance, Joe was not an obvious match, a slender man, he was once described as too scrawny for manual labor. And next to Libby, Joe looked like a kid. But Joe knew exactly what he liked and precisely how to get it. Back in Missouri, as a reporter for the St. Louis Post, he had worked hard, saved his money, and eventually bought the entire newspaper. Then he bought the St. Louis Dispatch. Then he moved to Manhattan, where he bought a newspaper called The World. That's where Joe first laid eyes on Fred's daughter. And that's when he proclaimed on the front page of his own newspaper that Libby would stay with him 
in New York City. Again, Fred was positively delighted. Obviously, Joe was a foreigner, but Libby didn't care about that. There was only one problem. When Fred told Joe that he and Gus wanted to see Libby on a pedestal, he wasn't talking in metaphors. He was talking about an actual pedestal, one that would cost the city of New York no less than $250,000. That's the equivalent of $6 million today. Sadly, Joe didn't have that kind of cash lying around, but Joe was a man who knew exactly what he liked and precisely how to get it. So, 150 years before crowdfunding was even a thing, the former journalist from Hungary turned his newspaper into a GoFundMe page and challenged his readers to help him keep Libby in New York City. Philip and Ezra Bender were among the first to contribute with 50 cents each. Joe printed their names along with his thanks right there on the front page next to a photo of Libby. Their kids pitched in as well, so Joe printed their names too. Anna, 25 cents. Franny, 25 cents. Leonard, 10 cents. Frank, 15 cents. Alice, 10 cents. Ralph, 10 cents. Carrie, 10 cents. And Miss Nicey, also good for 25 cents. All in all, the Benders kicked in $2.30, and everyone read all about it. Soon, hundreds of New Yorkers began donating their pocket change. Street sweepers, carriage drivers, stonemasons, housewives, ordinary men and women with only pennies to spare. Anyone who donated saw their name in the newspaper next to an image of Libby. Within months, the necessary funds were in hand, and soon after that, on a place called Bledsoe Island, construction began on a mighty pedestal, a pedestal sturdy enough to support the full-figured gal that Joe was determined to keep in the Big Apple, the 450,000-pound, 151-foot statue called Libertas. Frederick Bartholdi conceived her and gave her a name. Gustav Eiffel raised her and gave her a frame. But it was an immigrant from Hungary who gave the lady from France a place to stand. Without Joe, Libby would be in somebody else's harbor. Philadelphia's probably, or maybe Baltimore's. Or maybe in somebody else's country. She almost wound up behind a veil standing at the mouth of the Suez Canal, dressed in the robes of an Arab peasant. Instead, she stands at the foot of Manhattan, where she welcomes the tired, the poor, the huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. It's funny, an immigrant, famous today for the prizes still bestowed in his name, is largely forgotten for his greatest gift, a Kickstarter campaign that kept our favorite lady right where she belongs, thanks to thousands of New Yorkers with pocket change and a man named Joe Pulitzer. We can say that once upon a time, America put liberty on a pedestal. Anyway, that's the way I heard it. <laughs>